We have some realistic characters in the Black Cauldron, Taryn and Ilanwe, a 13-year-old boy and girl. And we had to work very hard on their design to find that magic fence that we walked along between because it would be very easy to go either too cartoony with big bug eyes and, you know, and very too straight, which loses its warmth and appeal. Welcome to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. If you're joining the show for the first time, this is the podcast where we go back and re-examine movies that bombed at the box office and or were hated by the critics. Brad, we I don't even know what episode number this is. I think it's uh, 10-something, right? 109? 109, cool. I'll trust yeah. you. Okay. Uh, uh, your pick, what, what did you choose for us this week? Yeah, I, I chose a real banger. Have you ever heard of this this small company called Walt Disney? I've heard some good things about them. Um, okay. They're a little independent uh, distributor out there, I think. Yeah. Well, at, at one point in time, they released the movie that almost broke Walt Disney animation. Ooh. And that film is 1985's The Black Cauldron. Okay. Animated film. I, I feel animated. like animated films with us, it's hit or miss. Are we batting about 500 on on the selection we've done? I th- I think so. We've had some really good ones. I think Treasure Planet is a standout one. Iron Giant. I remember those Iron two Giants. being the two that were pretty fantastic. Yeah. And then we have, uh, what was the Matt Damon one? Oh, uh, Titan AE, which I yeah. I liked. I don't think you did. No. Okay. Um, no, this is it, it's tricky. I, I always find animated films are a little bit hard to sit down and even take a critical eye to. Just well, typically they're, you're not the target audience. Right? Yeah, exactly. So it's hard. It's hard to, I don't know, be critical at all for it. But I, I figure at 109 episodes, I, I had a question for you. I mean, we've, we've been doing this podcast for a couple of years now and we've primarily focused on movies that have bombed. So I was, I was thinking like, do, do you at this point have a good list of things that you're looking for? you know, signs, if you will, that kind of say, Hey, when, when I see this thing or this is going on, I'm pretty sure that movie's going to bomb. Yeah. The first one that came to mind for me was regime change. Oh, so anytime yeah. up at the top, uh, be it, um, a studio executive, maybe the director, uh, maybe important writers, uh, leave the project and someone else comes in. Um, and that original vision sometimes, uh, gets lost. Uh, that was to me, probably the one that stood out the most. I, I had that one new studio chairman. As soon as yes. that shows up, usually it's not a good sign, uh, for productions that are kind of in the transition. One that I had was, uh, you see a dozen screenwriters in the credits. Yes. That usually means that no one had any idea what to do. So they said the more people we could throw at this, maybe, Someone will have a good idea. We can mm-hmm. make a movie by committee. Yep. You, you got another one? Uh, terrible marketing. Oh, what do, uh, what do you so mean? So if you don't know how to market a movie. Um, I kind of I got this one too, but I've got a very specific slant on it. 
Okay. Let's, let's hear your slant. When the marketing says from the makers of, or from oh. the producers of, usually it's not a good sign. Yes. We got a lot of Judd Apatow stuff from the producers of 40 year old version mm-hmm. or the guy who was the grip on 40 year old version. Yeah, the yeah. catering team from, <laughs> yep. yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> this is obviously the most obvious one. Uh-huh obviously the most obvious, the one that is when your budget is too big, right? When your, your your scope of your movie is, is too big. Um, well, your scope is, is beyond your budget, beyond your budget. Yes. So, and that could be for a lot of reasons too. Maybe your original budget was X. There were some issues along the way delays. Um, you, you, that budget then balloons to maybe two X, uh, Mm -hmm. then there's reshoots, um, so which reshoots yeah, are, of, are usually a part. I mean, there's always reshoots. Y- yes. But you know, I think they yeah. plan for two months of reshoots, yes. but sometimes it could be six months, you, you know? So yeah, you, you kind of have to dial in your scope and, and what your movie is going to be. And then, um, get that budget right for what you honestly think the movie is going to do. I always think of John Carter of Mars. Oh yeah. I think, think that movie was way over i i know they were going for another pirates of the caribbean but it, it just it wasn't the same mm-hmm. and they treated it like it was going to be um anyone from the outside would have been like this has gotten way too out of hand no that, that's a good one i have this one too you see a dozen editors in the credits and one of those names is a producer oh yeah usually yeah. at that point it kind of goes hand in hand with the screenwriters when when you have, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight people trying to edit the thing, and then even I always get scared when a producer kind of takes a different role than producer, especially when they get into editing, screenwriting, direct, whatever it is. At, at that point, it kind of goes back to the same comments about the screenwriting credits when you have a bunch of them. They don't know what they want out of the product, and it, it really shouldn't involve too many, you know, editing choices Editors have a vision to a film as much as, a, I think, a director, um, a, a screenplay, you know, somebody writes a screenplay, et cetera. So oh, absolutely. Whenever, whenever I see, a, you know, a lot of people on the editing credits, I, I start to get a little worried. Yeah. You, you think about how important the editor is of a movie. Arguably, it's the director and then the editor. I mean, because you think about a movie and you're like, wow, this thing is it would be a good movie if this scene or these scenes weren't so long, or if this movie wasn't 40 minutes that they could have cut out. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I also had was bad press. So think about things with the postman with cats <laughs> where you're hearing all this stuff about these assholes went to cat school for four months before they started <laughs> making this movie. And they had to, you know, the effects weren't done and they, literally we're sending out patches as the movie's coming out and there's buttholes in it and water world like the the entire world is another one yeah Yeah. okay i've I've got one kind of along those lines i'm I'm starting to see this trend especially lately and it's post-release okay studio starts a marketing campaign or or sort of like a news press release thing that basically x group or demographic hates Y group or demographic that made or stars in the film. So I, I really think there's this whole, we stir up some controversy or 
really, if you see anything negative about the film, it's coming from a specific demographic or, or, you know, section of society that's attacking another section of society. But in fact, I think that's a little bit of damage control. As soon as the studio starts to sniff out that maybe, you know, the critics aren't really digging what you're out there. The audience really isn't liking it. Uh, and, and I always kind of use Ghostbusters 2016 as a great example. A lot of people went to bat on that one saying anything that you see negative is because, you know, the internet hates women mm-hmm. and they didn't. But at the end of the day, it's like, it, could, could you consider just for a second that maybe it was a terrible movie? Yes. Um, you're not wrong. I, I, I like some of the marketing would then spin the critical response and then show like, but the audience on Rod tomatoes is at 75. So don't listen to the critics. Yeah. All 10 people who saw it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, Let's see. What do I have? Oh, Ooh, having a miscast star. um, Okay. As your lead. um, We're thinking someone who is a lead uh, actor um, is not necessarily a lead actor outside of a certain set. Uh, Chris Hemsworth comes to mind with black cat. Um, Chris Hemsworth is a, is a big actor inside the MCU. Yes. Outside of the MCU. He is not, he is not, uh, he is not going to pull people into the theater. Uh, see ghostbusters 2016. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, that's a good one. I, okay. I have this one. I always get nervous when a movie opens with lots of exposition or narration. So I, I feel like if we were to think about a lot of movies that bombed, especially in the Except sci-fi fantasy, stuff like that, when exposition narration's fine, it'll set the tone, but I ha- I, I'm just doing like the math in my head of all the movies that I've seen that really bombed and the exposition is really heavy to kind of set up the world and give you the rules and everything else. It's kind of letting me know that there might be some problems in the screenplay or the movie got truncated. Uh, Spawn was one that was that we just talked about m- more oh, recently. Shit, yeah. That was just terrible. I mean, you get a bunch of exposition and narration in the beginning, then a little bit of a action set piece, and then a ton more exposition and narration about what's going on. At that point, I, I knew we were in trouble, and and the movie just it. I think it suffers from quality if you put too much of that up front. Yeah, screenwriting one hundred and one tells you show don't tell. Yeah, and you know you mentioned you're telling Star Wars. the movie at the very beginning. You're like, uh oh, we're in trouble. Yeah, Star Wars gives you this uh, crawl, and then as soon as it's over, you're right into the action. I, I think that's done. You know, that's a good example of narration done expertly, uh, but way too often I think they rely on that to kind of set the tone or set the universe, and it, and it backfires. Yep, agreed. Um, let's see, did I have any other? ones uh bad press i said that one marketing cost too much yeah that's all kind of i had did you have any more oh i've got more <laughs> Ooh, let me hear them <laughs> okay extreme edits made because of a bad test screening oh yes yes yeah that we hear that all screen. the time when we talk about yeah. production and development i i feel like if you're if you don't have any confidence in your film and you're letting that test audience kind of run all over it you're, you're in trouble from the get-go so I, yeah, I, so many times we hear when we're talking about these movies, well, the first test screening was really bad. So they went back or I think Mortal Kombat Annihilation, it test screened really well. And they're like, well, we don't need to finish the effects because it <laughs> the test screen it. was great. Yeah. So we can it could be a double edged sword. Um, but most of the time it's like ah, the, the test audience didn't love it. And so we're going to go back and 
retool it and re-edit and maybe do some reshoots and you know like well okay your original vision was this but now because this group of people said they didn't like it now you're going to go ahead and change it yeah uh, and, and i think test groups are are important but they're not the end all be all no you got to take it with a grain of salt right right yeah because we've learned over the years that people are dumb yep <laughs> this is true uh critics can't review the film until after it opens that's usually that a warning was, sign okay yes i i when we were talking I, I meant to write that one down but not uh not screened for critics is a big uh big red flag now sometimes it's okay um there might be something that they don't want spoiled or or, or, or something like that but most of the time it's i would say even hey, now we, i mean take take the mcu or or the comic book films yeah, they're all in bar. They have certain parts that they are have embargoes, embargo, but they're screened yeah. beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, here's my last one. And I think we talked about this a few times. The guy who stars in the film also wrote, directed, edited and produced the film. That's usually not a good sign. Uh, Wear- wearing all the hats is a bad idea. Yeah. Now, this does not apply to Jackie Chan. <laughs> so all the films that he did that he actually holds the Guinness book of world records for most credits within a film all the way down to catering and stuff like that for uh, Chinese Zodiac, which was technically like armor of God three. Yeah. And and it's a good film, but yeah, I, I, I can't think of a lot of people who can do all of that stuff or if they do it and they, they hit big with a film, i.e. maybe Kevin Costner with dances with wolves. I, I know he, he wore a bunch of hats on that one. It's rare, yeah. uh, but typically uh, these vanity projects don't end well when it comes to like box office returns. Sidebar, since mm-hmm. you brought up Jackie Chan, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this. Um, so I had some people come over to my house on Saturday to watch Jaws because Fourth of July in Jaws are the, mm-hmm. are the quintessential uh, Fourth of July films. Um, and a few of the people were running a little bit late and I was like, you know what? Uh I'm going to watch a few parts of police story. And I was showing people the shanty town. Oh, the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Which is awesome. Which goes right into the bus scene, mm-hmm. which that 20 minutes is, or 15 minutes is cinematic. Some of the best. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then of course the mall scene at the end and people were like blown away by, you know, a, it was young Jackie chain. And they're like, I didn't know he did any of this stuff. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. But Showing people police story and seeing them see it for the first time was maybe one of my favorite moments of my life, period. <laughs> I, I really do feel a lot of American audiences, and I would say modern American audiences. Prob- I think it starts with Rumble in the Bronx, right? Uh, I was going to say Rush Hour. Rush, Rush Hour, Hour yeah, okay. is usually what they gravitate to or, or any of the American releases. And I, I just don't think people appreciate, well, you know, I'll say 80s. Uh, in early '90s, Hong Kong cinema in general. I mean, think about all the Samuel Hung films that were made um, within that time period that are just absolutely amazing. But oh, that that makes me. That's, now, I will say, if you want to see a, an indicator uh, to throw some shade at Jackie Chan, if Jackie Chan starred in the film post like 2005, it's probably a bomb because he, yeah, he's not making some great, he's got some, he's got some gems in there. They're few and far between, but there seemed to be a point within his filmmaking that it, it, it you know, a lot of diminishing it happens returns. To, it happens to us all, buddy. It is. Yep. So we're talking about a film that actually has a few of these things going on behind the scenes. 
uh, specifically screen, a lot of screenwriters, um, test screenings gone bad, um, release dates that get moved around. So it'll be interesting to kind of talk about the history of this one, but let's go back to 1985. This film was kind of a big deal for Disney in the mid eighties, uh, but it didn't do so well. And, uh, you want to kind of talk about its release and how it did and what it was up against. Yeah, so I'm going to workshop my uh, my one joke I have for for the Black Cauldron, okay. aka Fellowship of the Pig. You oh, like yeah. that one? I like that one. Okay. That's good. That's okay. very accurate. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so we have the Black Cauldron releasing, finally releasing, uh, July 24th, 1985, with a reported budget of 44 million dollars. It does not release internationally, um, so only domestic return on this one. $21.3 million. Ouch. So they lose over $20 million in 1985 money just on production alone. Um, That's huge. So not great. Yeah, they're losing a lot of money. Um, and this is at a time where Disney's not Disney, right? The 80s were a weird period um, well, for Walt Disney. Yeah, early 80s to mid 80s. It, mm-hmm. it was problematic, right? Yeah, I think The Little Mermaid was the first time people were like, okay, maybe Disney is back. Um, and that wasn't until 88, 89, I believe. Yeah, there. so <laughs> I, I, I thought this was fascinating. Um, if you think about it, so specifically the animation studio behind it, mm-hmm. just kind of doing a look back from the 70s going into the 80s, 1977 was The Rescuers as well as Pete's Dragon, which is a combination of animation, live action. Yeah. Not, 80, didn't do great. Yeah. Pete's Dragon is not a, didn't do, perform like Walt Disney would expect. Yeah. Yeah. Fox and the Hound was 81. Okay. Black Another Cauldron. kind of. Yeah, yeah. Middling, right? Yeah. Black Cauldron was 85. They followed that up with the Great Mouse Detective. Then Who Framed Roger Rabbit was 88. So oh, okay. That was a big hit. Then... That same year, they had Oliver and Company, which also was a pretty good hit. Okay. And then Little Mermaid was 89. So Black Cauldron, I, I would say, was kind of the last of the dark period, maybe. Yeah. Well, and and they specifically were going for a little bit older, because this is the Teenagers. first time D- yeah. D- Disney is going with the PG um, rating and not mm-hmm. a G. No singing in this movie. Um, and... Um, I, I, I guess, you know, this is them trying to, to, they, so Disney has always been weird, right? Cause they've always been chasing after the male audience mm-hmm. and it's, it's one of those things. that's like never good enough. So they always specifically go for the male audience. And when they do that, it seems like it doesn't work out. Um, creatively when, when creatively internally and creatively they, they go after it. There's, it's usually problematic. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is so, why they bought star Wars. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> when the Black Cauldron comes out in July of 1985, this is probably why it bombs because 1985, the summer of 1985 is huge, but July has some movies that are some pretty big counter programming for this movie. Mm-hmm. So you have the first one is Back to the Future, which would oh. go on to make $385 million, the biggest movie of that summer. Um, then you have stuff like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Silverado, which is a movie you love. Love it. Explorers, The Legend of uh, Billy Jean, uh, The Heavenly Kid, 
okay. Kiss of the Spider Woman, mm-hmm. uh, National Lampoon's European Vacation, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So a lot of those movies, like if I'm a kid, I want to see Back to the Future, Pee Wee's. I think you're missing one too. It wasn't released that year, but it was re-released. I think in the same month as the Black Cauldron. So E.T. had come out in what eighty four. Oh yes, and they re-released it the summer of eighty five. I think the same month because the yes. re-release of E.T. actually did better than the Black Cauldron. Yes, well, because yeah, which I was going to get into. So the week it comes out, um, it ranks third or fourth. I'm sorry, fourth. Uh, it's opening weekend with four point one million dollars. It's behind National Lampoon's European Vacation, Back to the Future, um, which is in its fourth week, E.T., which it's uh, in its second release of, well, second week of its re-release then, and then The Black Cauldron. And then it's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Silverado, Cocoon, Rambo First Blood Part Two, Pale Rider, St. Elmo's Fire, The Heavenly Kid. Hmm. So a lot of awesome movies. But yeah, you're right. E.T. also played a, a huge part um, in this movie, not doing well. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, Troy, not kind to the Black Cauldron. Sits at a 55 with the critics and a 48 with the audience. I think this is one of the first time we've seen the audience less than the critics. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sadly, no uh, Christian website review of this movie. Oh, darn it. I know. Uh, well, I'm sure they would not like it. I this don't think would they have would. Been no, at least a negative two. Okay, so let's talk about the people we made this thing. Uh, we'll start with the directors. There's two of them, which is not uncommon for an animated film. Ted Berman and Richard Rich. I like that name. Richie Rich. It's Richard Rich. <laughs> Dick Rich. <laughs> Dick Rich. Uh, now together they actually, you know, did uh, three movies: The Fox and the Hound in '81. Black Cauldron in 85 and a TV movie in 87 called DTV monster hits. Now Richard rich went on to direct other animated features and television shows throughout his career. Ted did not. And, and Richard worked on stuff like the Swan princess in 94 King and I 99, both animated films and a crap. I mean a crap ton of Swan princess video sequels. It's ridiculous yes. how many of these he cranked out. And a lot of Alpha and no Omega. Yes, movies as Alpha well. and Omega. That's right. Uh, the writers on this film. So hmm. you're you're going to see one of those signs that a movie is going to be a bomb. This I is think really I counted there was ten. Yeah, listen to this. So it's based on the novel series, The Chronicles of Prydain. Is that how you say that? Prydain. Prydain. Okay, by yeah. Lloyd Alexander. Now here are the story credits: David Jones, Vance Gary, Ted Berman. Richard Rich, Al Wilson, Roy Morita, Peter Young, Art Stevens, Joe Hill. You're like, my gosh, Troy, that's a lot. We're not done yet. So they go, well, hey, that's that's a lot of people to write this story, but it needs more dialogue because we need a lot more dialogue. So let's do additional dialogue by Rosemary Ann Sison and Roy Edward Disney. So he contributed some dialogue. And, and you're like, look, that's not enough. Let's get some additional story contributors. Now we've got Tony Marino, Steve Hubert, Mel Shaw, Bernie Madison, John Musker, Ron Clements, and Doug Leffler. To clarify things, this is an 80-minute movie. This is yeah. an hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have all those people working on an 80-minute movie. 
Well, all these people worked on it through the life of the production, yes, which we'll get exactly to that in a right. minute. Yes. But it's crazy uh, because apparently these novels or the series were very complex and they had to distill it down into a film. Yeah, I think it's very it's so elephant in the room. This comes after Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very sort of Lord of the Rings in, in, expi- inspired by. Um, so it's very rich with lore. Lots of stuff going on. I believe they're trying to set up some things, but they're bringing in a lot of elements into this 80 minute movie. Yeah. Um, It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, Composer, which I thought was pretty interesting. I, I, this shocked me to see this person on here, Elmer Bernstein. So Elmer has 14 Oscar nominations, one Oscar win for best original music score, uh, for the film Thoroughly Modern Millie from 1967. He's kind of a big deal when you talk about film scores in general, historic ones. There are two that I, as soon as I hear his name, I automatically want to listen to, you know, the theme to The Magnificent Seven from 1960 mm-hmm. and the entire instrumental score for Ghostbusters in 84. Those are the two I know him for. Do you, do you have any other Elmer Bernstein favorites? Um, Didn't he do some work for blues brothers as well. Uh, I'm thinking of the wrong guy. Yeah. That I don't know. Oh yeah. Blues brothers. Uh, a lot of stuff in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. he's got a ton of credits. Um, obviously with 14 Oscar nominations. I think we've, we've mentioned there... spies like us before, but it looks like he worked on spies like us mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So uh, producer on this Joe Hale. Now we've talked about Joe Hale before uh, he was, on the animation special effects team for the black hole in 1979, another Disney film we talked about. Yep. So let's talk about the voice cast. <laughs> I sure. Cause I know nothing about these people. Oh, I think you'll know a few of them. You yeah. just don't know. Uh, Grant Beardsley as Taryn have no idea who that guy is. Freddie Jones as Dalbin. Yeah. I, I, I looked through these people's filmography. I'm like, yeah, I've seen some of the movies have no clue who they are. Yeah. Uh, Susan Sheridan as, <laughs> okay, let me just take a time out. <laughs> these names in these fantasy well, stories, it's. They're Welsh, right? These are based on Welsh. They're stories, Welsh. So okay. I think they're Welsh. Elwin, Elwini, Elwin, we, yeah. we, Elwin, we, yeah. okay. Elwin, yeah. uh, Nigel Hawthorne as Fluter, 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 maybe. Uh, John Biner as Gergi. Did I get that one right? Yeah. Gergi. Yeah. Okay. Don't worry. We'll circle back around on Gergi. Okay. Don't you worry. Uh, John Hurt. Now, this name I know. He's the Horned King. And I think everybody will know uh, John Hurt from 1979's Alien. And he's Kane, where the alien comes out of his chest, right? Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Uh, now, I thought this was funny. As one of the fair folk, I think the fair folk are the the things that were flying around when they... The fairy, they're, ba- they're basically fairies, yeah. Okay. Yep. So, one of the fairies, you'll know this name, Brandon Call. That son of a bitch little kid. <laughs> yes, from Blind Fury, kid. who plays uh, Billy in Blind Fury. He yep. is one of the fair folk. And step by step, yeah. Yeah, and this one, when I saw this name, I'm like, I, th- I think I know this guy. Uh, and sure enough, I go and look at it. Phil Fondacaro plays, uh, has the voice of the Creeper. Now, when, when you pull up his IMDb and stuff like that, it goes, oh, Return of the Jedi, 1983, because he was an Ewok. Mm-hmm. I remember him from Troll in 86, Ghoulies 2 in 87, and uh, Von Carr uh, in Willow 1988. In Willow, yeah, okay, yeah. yep. 
So there, there's your voice cast. Let's. I believe let's, he's a he's a little person. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yep. 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 Correct. Uh, let's talk about the production and development on this thing. So that this is man, talk about a shit show. All right, here we go. A little history lesson. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Another one is, does your production date back more than a decade? Because if so, it's probably <laughs> it's probably be a, bomb. a bomb. Yep. So Disney optioned Alexander's five volume series in 1971. And throughout the decade, used the material to recruit prospective animators to the company. So they bought this property. They go out to these young animators. And they go, hey, come work at Disney, right? And they were promising it as, hey, this is going to be the, the Snow White for a new generation. That's how big of a deal it is going to be from an animation standpoint. So pre-production technically begins in 1973. Studio chief Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law, because nepotism runs rampant in our corporate <laughs> world, uh, was worried, though, that his young team that he just recruited wasn't yet ready to tackle the film and kept delaying the production year after year after year. One of those animators, sort of a big name, he gets frustrated in 1979. That person is Don Bluth. So he quit. He goes, I'm done. He takes 14 colleagues with him to start his own animation studio. So Don Bluth, American Tale, Secret of Nim, kind of a big name in animation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and he goes out, takes these 14s, like, screw this. I'm, I'm going to go start my own studio. We're going to compete against you guys. So Disney finally decided to commit to the project in 1981. And that was right after the Fox and the Hound production wrapped. So they could take some of their artists and stuff and put them on this. Well, uh, one of the, one of the things I found interesting when I was looking at stuff was they essentially put a six month, a six year like kibosh on this in 1978 mm -hmm. because they were like, you guys need like way more experience in the animation to do what we want you to do. So and that's that's what forced months. everybody out. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to it's not going to be six months or a year. It's we think it's going to be six years before we you're ready to do this. Yeah. I, could you imagine being at your job? You get hired and someone says, I don't think you're going to be ready to really do this job for six years. Yeah. The orientation and training program is six years before and you're yeah. like, no, no, thank you. Well, and, and we talked about this. So at this time period, Disney was putting out movies like that darn cat and, and they made a decision, Hey, we got to go after this, this teenage audience. Cause they're bored of the, of the Disney family fair. So when Don Bluth took everybody out and um, you know, they lost some, some big talent, Disney decided, Hey, let's bring some guys out of retirement uh, who have worked on some big Disney classics, but also go out to Cal arts and grab a couple of grad students to help finish the project. And to give you an idea of who they recruited right out of grad arts, we've got names like John Lasseter and Tim Burton. Okay. Now those two would eventually either jump ship or get fired because everybody was fighting on what this thing should look like. Nobody liked Tim Burton's artwork. Um, John Lasseter was trying to kind of push new innovation. They're like, Tim, can't you just be happy? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's so dark. Apparently he's drawing like hands with, you know, they're flying around with eyeballs and they're like, nope, not for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, they go on to do bigger and better things. Now this is how ambitious they were with this project. Cauldron was the first Disney feature filmed in 70 millimeter widescreen since sleeping beauty, 70 millimeter widescreen is like a big deal. Yeah. 
Um, it boasted a six track Dolby sound and the first computer animation ever in a Disney film. The company even planned for the cauldron born sequence to include a special holographic sequence that would bring the deathless swordsman into the theater. So as things are going on the screen, all of a sudden this hologram would come out and start walking the aisles of the theater. That's crazy. Yeah. So here's what happens. <laughs> Tons of delays <laughs> and problems getting his finish line. Okay. Project scale overwhelms already a depleted animation department. So they got retirees coming back and a bunch of students. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, we're in overhead. Plus they couldn't agree on anything. Uh, the holographic sequence was scrapped because what they wanted to do couldn't work with standard projectors and to go out to all the theaters and have yeah. it upgraded for just this one film too costly. And then uh, just tons of stuff goes wrong, even down to like a 10 week animator strike in 1982, which set everything back. Right. So finally, this thing is kind of made by about 1984. Uh, and in fall of 1984, just months away from the planned holiday release, because it's coming out the end of the year, Ron Miller was deposed as the chairman of the company and replaced by Michael Eisner. So there's one of our uh, things we talked about, right? It's a sign something's going to bomb. Yeah. Now, neither Eisner nor his hand-picked studio chairman. Now, Michael Eisner was, I think he was CEO of Disney until, I think, the mid-2000s. Yeah, he, he ran for a while. Yeah. So he was there for a long time. So this isn't just some guy who comes and goes. No, I, no, no. Michael Eisner has been there, is there for a while and is really kind of spearheads Disney's turnaround. Exactly. And he brings in Jeffrey Katzenberg, right? Now, the problem is neither of them really cared about animation in fact, right from the get-go, they were discussing eliminating the division entirely. Now, they hear about one of the films, the animated films that are coming out, The Black Cauldron. Katzenberg says, hey, I want to see this film. So they say, Katz all right. Katzenberg, who would go on to do DreamWorks. Yes. So I think he's responsible for Shrek, Madagascar, Kung Fu Panda, yep. back to Jackie Chan, mm -hmm. um, and How to Train Your Dragon. Exactly. So they say, okay, we got a rough cut. We're going we're gonna to show it to you with a test audience. And towards the end of the film, the doors in the back of the auditorium start flying open. And there's this, this sizable exodus of kids and parents leaving over the undead section and sequence, right? So Katzenberg loses his shit and says, hey, look, we got to recut this thing. So give me the outtakes so that I can go into the editing bay and start uh, recutting this film. What he didn't understand is that this type of film development, it doesn't have outtakes. You storyboard this thing, you create it. What you've got is what you've got. At that point, you're just fine tuning, right? Because animation is so demanding yes. that you don't cut anything. If everything is so planned out, you know exactly what's going to be in the movie because you don't want animators to work on something that ultimately is not in your movie. So if they do something and say you cut, I don't know, say 12 minutes out of your movie, um, that's bad because that's lost work that people will never see. No, exactly. I mean, if, if you're going to make edits or cuts, it's got to happen way in the beginning. So there's a huge battle over what to cut from the film eventually. And you, you nailed it 12 minutes are removed from the film. Okay. So I watched this movie and then I was reading on how some of that stuff was cut. If you go back and watch the final sequence, not only is stuff cut out, but the music is cut too. Yeah. So where they make cuts, the music cuts too. So it doesn't, they didn't even go back and like correct that stuff. That's how much of a rush. And I guess at this point in time, they were just like, just get the shit done. 
but how little care was put into this thing at the by the end of it. Yeah, and, and it's my understanding they can't uh, they can't go back and put it all together. That stuff doesn't exist anymore. There's prints and I, I guess unused artwork that you can go and find in mm-hmm. in images but at the end of the day that 12 minutes is like gone gone yeah i think you'd probably have to like reanimate which is impossible exactly so as a result of all the shenanigans in the fall of 84 they have to push the release date back to the summer of 85 okay and you, you've already talked about this first animated film from disney to be rated pg i guess in some of the rough cuts it the MPAA was coming back with like an r rating and yeah because at this time pg-13 didn't exist so it was a rated R animated film by Walt Disney, which was not going to fly, obviously. Yeah, and, it, um, and it's crazy because if you think about how much Disney was promoting this for, let's say, four years, from 81 to 85, if you saw any, like, Disney specials on TV, et cetera, they would take you behind the scenes, and, you know, they would tell you, hey, we're working on this new film, Black Cauldron. A lot of work and effort went into this thing. But just like what we talked about, you know, sort of the beginning of the show, you've got all these signs that when certain things happen, you can pretty much guarantee a movie's going to bomb. And this thing just starts going through the checklist, like 15 writers, check, right? Uh, change of the studio heads, check. Yep. Really poor yep. test screening, check. I mean, it's yep. going through all of this stuff, and this thing is being set up for failure even before it, it goes out the, the door. Scope, the scope is way too big. You know, they have the rights to these books that – Clearly, they want to make it yeah. into something, but the scope is way too big for an 80 or at the time, probably 92 minute film. Um, yeah, you're correct. Now, Troy, do you know this film marks the first time, obviously, that CGI was used in a Disney film, mm-hmm. but it also is the first time that the blue Walt Disney Castle was used in an animated film. Oh, is that the is that the blue background with the white logo and yep. stuff on it? OK, yep. cool. Yep. So, you know, and then also this is the first time the credits don't play before the movie. Oh. The credits play at the end of this one. So up until this point, you would always say, remember how yeah. all the credits in the beginning were so, yeah. Now they move that to the end. Probably because people are like, look, just put it at the end because people might not even make it to the end. And I don't want my name to be attached to this thing. So <laughs> just get it out there. All right. Uh, well, let's let's get to it. Uh, this was your pick. I, I do want to ask a question. So we talked about a Disney film that I saw at an early age, the black hole. Mm-hmm. And I would 100% say that that film just based on its themes, topics, some of the scenery in it, it started my interest in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. So there, there are just a lot of horror elements in there. And um, even though I'm a big scaredy cat, I really like scary movies and I, I can trace it back to, you know, discovering stuff like the black hole at an early age. Did is this a film that you caught at an early age as well, or like when did you? Because this was a first time watch for me. I'd never seen this film. Well, it, that's interesting, right? Because it doesn't come out on video until the nineties. I think mm-hmm. it's like ninety eight or something like that. It's like thirteen years later is when it comes out on video. They showed this thing forever, um, and that is when I originally saw it. My neighbor was a huge Walt Disney person. So they got all the cassettes every time something from Disney came out. And I remember watching this one and being pretty afraid um, as, you know, I, I mean, I was, you know, 13 at the time probably, uh, but still, I mean, there's some things in here that are pretty scary. Um, there's even some jump scares. Um, the Horn King, 
um, I think has a really cool design. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing this specifically remember watching this for the first time and being like, Oh, this is, this is kind of scary. Like I, I, I'm a little bit afraid of what's going on. Um, but now I watched it again and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. What, I didn't, I didn't know if this I, was something that you saw much younger. Um, because I, like I said, I saw the black hole at a very young age in the theater. No, and, see, cause I didn't see it when it came in in the theater and I was 85. I was two at the time. I wasn't seeing too much, but, ah, dang it. And then they, then they shelved it for so long. Um, cause this was kind of that movie where they were like, we don't want people to really know it exists. Pretty much. I mean, of all the, you, you can easily get Disney films. I mean, this is on Disney channel or Disney plus, right? Disney plus. Yeah. If you now want the, they did it, they did a great job. Like this is like a 4k transfer as HDR. Um, so, you know, they did some work on the back end on this to make it look nice when you stream it. Unfortunately, yeah, you getting it, that Blu-ray is, is difficult. You got to be part of their movie club um, in order or to go get on it. eBay and spend $30 like I did. But, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah me too. Me too. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm curious. Uh, what did you think on a revisit of the Black Cauldron? Um, so uh, I, I'll start off by saying this doesn't look like any other Walt Disney film, especially at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very sort of metal album come to life and it's got lots of lore that they're trying to to fit into this thing. And ultimately I think this movie is flawed to the nth degree, but it does have a look and I think it looks at times amazing at other times. I think it looks like trash, (laughs) Um, but you know, it's, it's like their first foray into like horror movies are doing horror movie tropes said there's some jump scares there's skeletons the horn king is is a very sort of menacing character until the very end um you know it's hard to ignore the the lord of the ringsness of this movie i mean essentially um let's see i I wrote this down a boy sit by an old man to look after the MacGuffin to keep it from an evil force to well yeah but essentially you know it's lord of the rings it's yeah. lord of the rings um but you know a lot of lord of the rings isn't wholly original either um i think my biggest problem with this movie is stuff just happens in this movie and they just they explain away by magic i looked away at one point in time and like oh shit they have a sword now how they get the sword and i'm like <laughs> oh he just got a sword and I'm like, Oh, there's a princess. Now where the princess comes up from. Oh, she just shows up. Oh, they're in like this weird water thing. Now how'd they get there? Oh, they just went there. Uh, this Gurgi guy is here. Where'd he come from? He just shows like all these things just happen. And that's what happens when you get a story where you're just like, no, you just got to go. You just got to go. You just got to go. We don't have time to explain this. We don't have, time to do this what are these witches with big breasts for i don't know they're just going to be there um we have to have this showdown at the end uh i don't know the horn king just gets pulled into the cauldron and that's it um because we spend all this time making him into this big bad and literally he gets pulled into the black cauldron and that's it and you're like oh okay um 
it's just clunky, man. It's really clunky. And I think Taryn might be the worst character I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh yeah. That kid. Taryn is so boring now. Okay. Troy, I'm going to pitch a movie to you. Yes. Tell me if you think this sounds awesome. It's Lord of the Rings, but it has a psychic pig. I'm in. Yeah, exactly. I'm in. Yeah. Uh, but you're going to have to put up with this shit eating kid for a while. No, I'm not in. Who has, I'm not into who that. has no, no, no sort of characteristic that you want to want to deal with. And they get so close. They get so close to kind of having a cool female character in this movie. The princess could be a cool character. They don't do anything with her. And then there's parts where they're like, well, but she's a girl. So here, sew my pants, uh, <laughs> they, you know, do this. They do. Oh my gosh. Have, have, <laughs> they do. Have they you do. ever seen just a female character uh, treated so poorly and kind of from a story perspective, just shoehorned into every female stereotype that ever existed about females? She's so underserved, it, right? Yeah. Cause like it's, it, it, it's terrible she, what they do to her. She could have been a cool character, uh, but they waste too much time with the old man and um, who has no reason being there. I no, don't even know why he's there. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. And Taryn is a waste. I liked sort of the setup of this movie and the cauldron looks cool, but then you're like, okay, so there was an evil king that's trapped in the cauldron. And now this other evil King wants to get the cauldron so he can have the undead army. Ultimately he does get the cauldron, but it doesn't last very long. Like all the, like you're, you're led to believe that if he gets the cauldron, it's the end of the world. Yeah. He gets the cauldron in this movie and it is fixed in five minutes because Gergi falls into it. So I don't know, man, aesthetically, I really, really like this movie. Uh, story wise, when, when you say that, just uh, like to find that, I'm I'm really curious about that. Like, what what about this film aesthetically sets I, it I, apart from the stuff that you've seen? Well, at the time, I'm I'm trying to put my brain back into 1985 when this comes out. Like, this is different than stuff that's out there. Is it like Ralph Bashy's doing stuff? Obviously, I, I was going to say there's another animator out there yeah, who's doing. I, very similar thing. And I think they yeah, wanted him like, for this at yeah, some I mean, point. Cause like the horn King is rotoscoped most of the time in this movie. You can yeah. definitely tell that. Um, and so they're going for that motif with him. And so Bakshi makes sense. Uh, it, it's just, I think the darkness of it is appealing to me. There's like some cool, like live, they actually use like some live action for the sky, which is kind of cool. Like they're doing a lot of different techniques to make this work. And I'm sure a lot of that is like, we can't animate this sky. We have to pull in like a real sky and and, and fix this. Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain if you like something, how the way things look. Um, but I just do. I, I like the way this looks. I think in 4K, it looks quite amazing. I was a little bit mad because like we knew we were doing this for a while. And I was like, I'll go on eBay and I'll buy it. And I didn't even end up watching it because I'm like, oh, it's on 4K on Disney+. Plus. Um, I'll just watch that one. But, you know, I have it anyway. Um, but ultimately, I think this movie kind of sucks. Um, and it's sad that it does, because I think they're going for some real big swings, but but they miss every single time. The, the story in this is 
I, if I, I can't explain it, like, I, again, stuff just happens to these people. It just happens. Yeah. Like all of a sudden he has a sword and you're like, where did this goddamn sword come from? And he loses a sword. He gets the sword back. They forget that. Hey, halfway through the movie that the pig is like supposed to be the thing. So at the very end of the movie, they show you the pig. Cause you're like, Oh, where's Henwin? Oh, he's fine. He's with the guy. You're like, Oh, okay, cool. So, um, yeah, man, I, I wanted to like this, but man, it sucks at times. Was it something uh, that you thought uh, in revisiting it, it was you were going to like it from like no, a yeah. nostalgia standpoint? I, I had remembered liking this movie. And I'm sure at one point in time, I thought, you know, it, it was good um, because I, I, I probably wasn't into like watching movies for like, hey, what's the pacing like? What's, you know, what's the <laughs> yeah. storytelling like? How, what, what are they doing to, you know, move the move the plot along. Um, is the or is the storytelling organic? Um, you know, does stuff pay off and all this? And and again, they introduced so much lore in this movie, like the fairy people, the witches. There's dragons. There's skeletons. There's human beings that apparently one of the things they cut out was like those humans at the end, like their faces started, they started melting or something. They like get that. boils and everything else. Yeah. Like that. That, yeah. that would have been cool. But yeah, I, at some point in time, I'm sure my son and I will, will maybe venture down this road and watch this again, but you, you really couldn't pay me to watch this movie again, even at 80 minutes. It's, it's a slog. That middle part is where they're like captured and then they're not. And then they go under, some weird water thing. And yeah, I, I don't know what really happens in this movie. And I kind of watched it like two times because so much stuff just happens. I'm like, I, I had to miss something. I didn't look at my phone, but maybe I closed my eyes for a second and missed four <laughs> minutes of the movie, but no, it didn't, didn't happen. So when, when you, when you watch this or when you generally watch movies that we're going to talk about, are you taking notes during it or do you wait after and then jot down notes after watch? So usually I'll watch the movie and if something really grabs me, I'll stop it, write it down and then continue or I'll watch it. And then maybe I'll watch it again, but not really watch it as in depth the first time, but like take notes during that time. It just kind of depends on how much time I have. Um, we had a little bit more time because we haven't recorded in a while because of um, the way things were working. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I was kind of excited to watch this. So I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll just watch it the first time and then take notes the second time. I was like, man, I really wish I would have just taken my notes <laughs> the first time. Cause I got to do this again. Uh, and it doesn't get better the, the second time. I, I guess I'm the same. I will try not to take any notes while I'm watching it, but I can kind of tell if, if I'm coming out of the film or something hits me, I grab my, my iPhone and I just start, you know, typing away. Uh, some films, if I, if I'm so engrossed into it, I will not even touch notes for like a day or two and then sit down because I can remember everything and, and just kind of talk about it. Right. Well, in, in some movies you feel like it's important to let it sit on you for a little bit before you start to get your thoughts together. Cause you gotta, you know, I'm not a gut reaction person. That's why you know, I'm not into like, oh, I saw this trailer for this thing. It looks terrible. I'm like, well, I, I literally just watched it. Maybe I should let it marinate for a little bit. But it's kind of same with this one. I watched it and then I'm like, uh, I don't know. It's like, well, maybe it'll grow on me. 
I'll watch it again. It <laughs> didn't grow on me. Yeah, th- this is one. So as it started, and I go, ah, I gotta, I gotta make a note. And then it became one of those. You know what? I think I'm, I think I'm just gonna write down what I'm experiencing as I'm writing this. So my thoughts in the film are actually going to be from the notes that I took during the film in chronological order. Ooh, I want to hear chronologically how you feel about this movie. Yeah. Okay. So the first note is, and we start with somber narration, not a great sign. So again, we kind of talked about this. I'm always very wary of when we spend a lot of time kind of explaining what's going on. Uh, now, granted, you've got John Houston doing the prologue, love his voice, but that, that was my first kind of signal like, okay. Well, I thought that was, I really like the image of the black cauldron. I like the image, but um, again, fantasy films, it, it is very rare for them to do the narration and nail it in such a way that they're not giving so much away uh, that you can't kind of experience the awe and the wonder of the film. Or you kind of sit there and go, what are the rules again? What's going on? What do I have to remember? Uh, I, I didn't want it to study while I watched the film. Okay. So that, that was just the first note I wrote. Second note. So he abuses animals with a stick. <laughs> our hero's lady. Our hero really- is running around like beating ducks and, and pigs and stuff thinking war is awesome. So he's, he's got a stick taken on all the animal, uh, animals on the farm. Okay. Yep, that's our character. Who's going to have a hero's journey. Yep. Uh, then the next note, wait, the pig is psychic. What? <laughs> so that threw me off. Did not expect that to happen when he sticks his nose in the water. And all of a sudden he's like a, a walking magic eight ball. Kind of cool though. At that point I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of in, right? Yeah, you say Matt, if you say psychic pig, you've got my attention. Uh, yes. I, and I'm, I'm a big fan of babe and babe Two pig in the city. So, uh, that intro, the villain was fantastic. What is it doing in this pig boy movie? <laughs> that was my next note. Yeah. The horn, the horn King is the best thing. About Dude, when he, movie. when he comes on screen, you're like, okay, that is awesome. What now, is it I do doing? Wish in this they would have, I wish they would have let him be a little bit more mysterious for a longer period of time, introduce him early and then kind of let him be in the shadows. Yeah. I think is the best way to do that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I like that intro. Uh, Next note, what is this thing stealing the apple? It's a cross between Donald Duck and Golem. I can't understand him when he talks. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, Gurgi. Yeah, Gurgi. Do you think Andy Circus watched this movie? I don't Gollum? Dude, I don't know. I, I, it's very, it's very, Gollum is very Gurgi-like. If you watch the Blu-ray, there is a animated short on there with Huey, Dewey, and Louie and Donald Duck. Uh, and it's a Halloween short. So I watched that before I watched the film and the voice for Gurgi, it's, it's Donald Duck and Golem put together. Yeah. Uh, but it, he's furry cute, right? Next crunchins, note. crunchins and munchins. Is that what he says a lot? Crunchins and munchins. Food. I don't, I couldn't understand yeah. a thing. He said, I need, I wanted subtitles. subtitles. Yeah. yeah. 18 minutes in and I want a nap and I hate this kid. He's treating Donald Golem like shit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Creepy castle. I'm back. I like these bad guys. Something out of a Conan comic, but kid friendly. The horny bad guys back. Okay. This is cool. So I'm back in it. The horn. He's not horny. He's not wanting to have sex with everyone. He's got horns. 
Okay. Well, I wrote horny bad guy. Okay. <laughs> so I know what I meant when I wrote it. And I meant Could that the guy has like... horns that he wasn't like horny for the little boy. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. Next book. And the psychic pig again. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, here we go. Oh boy. Getting sleepy again, man. When this kid enters any scene, I get sleepy. He is animated. NyQuil. That was my next note. Uh, I think there's a chase going on. My blinking is getting longer and longer. <laughs> I have, I kind of remember this sequence. Like they're running around in the castle. Something's going on. Yeah. And you know what? I was awake for that whole time and I still don't remember how they escaped or what the princess helps them. Escape, I don't know. Right? I, apparently yeah. about this time. So I'm making heads or tails. Of these notes. I must've blinked really long at this point. Cause then I wrote, okay, I'm awake and there is a glowing thing chasing rats and he's with some girl. I need caffeine ASAP. Yeah. So she has the power to make that little ball thing, which never comes back. Well, okay. I had no That's idea the, what the, the ball thing is. Yeah. Okay. I'm sort of awake. Well, Glo- oh. a lot of the stuff in this movie is explained by magic, right? Yeah. It's magic. All right, my next note, I'm sort of awake, glowing sword, what happened, why is the sword glowing, where did he get the sword, who is this old guy with the harp? Have no idea what transpired there. Yeah, and, and so there's a there's a running, I'll call it a gag, it's, it's not funny, but those harp strings break when something happens, mm. never explained, never comes into... Does he just, restring the harp, and then the yeah. same one break? Okay. Yeah. Uh, see here. Okay. Didn't mean to close my eyes for that long. What is going on? The dwarves from snow white movie are glowing fairies and they captured the pig. What is going on? Uh, I have no idea how. Yeah. Cause then they, they go to like that underwater portal thing. Okay. Yeah. It's weird. cool. This movie has to be almost over. Feels like it's been four hours. That was my next note. Um, crap fell asleep again. There's a frog stuck in a pair of boobs. He can't get out of the boobs. Who are these three women? What the fuck is going on? Just stay awake. You got this. <laughs> that was my next note. Right. Yeah. The, the witches come out of, of nowhere. Yeah. Well, when you wake up and you see some frogs struggling out of like animated, I, massive, I massive was lost. Breasts. I mean, I was lost. Pretty, those are some bowling balls and socks. Cause I, I saw snow white <laughs> fairy old men and then that. Okay. Uh, Cool cauldron effects. Black cauldron bringing the army to life is creepy and belongs in a Ralph Bakshi movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Donald Golem is the only one of these heroes I kind of like. Everybody else is either dumb or an asshole, especially Pig Farmer Boy. And uh, here's my next note. And of course, they kill Donald Golem. <laughs> Bold move, Disney. Kill your most likable character. WTF. Should have killed the pig boy. Wait a second. What happened to the pig? Is it dead? So I had no idea what happened well, to the pig. He just dropped off. Well, no, he's, he's back at the end. He comes back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and he's back. Of course he's back. <laughs> yep. And, and, and Gorgie's back too. Yeah. Uh, and then my last note, shit, I have to rewatch this thing because I have no idea what happened. Fuck that. I'm watching Oliver and company. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> yep. Hey, and, and guess what? You really didn't miss anything. Cause the storytelling in this movie is terrible. I did did go back the next day and watch it again. Um, Man, it was, it was rough to get through on the second go around. It really is. I I'll tell you what, the biggest problem that I have with this film 
is the animation. There, there are some sequences that are pretty fantastic, but out of an even an 80-minute film, there's maybe 10 minutes that are really cool to look at. That's it. Everything else is just not interesting. And on top of that, of an 80-minute film, 60 to 70 minutes of it, you're following Terran or this this group of heroes that call are, them a fellowship of, of of some kind. The fellowship of the pig. Yep. Yep. That is the equivalent. Uh, I, I don't know to to nails on a chalkboard. It is it is so painful to just every time they open their voice, you just want to punch a baby. Um, it and their dialogue will put you to sleep fast. I mean. I'm glad I own this film because at any point in time, I do have one of those nights where I'm really struggling to go to sleep. This sucker goes in. I'll be out in 18 minutes. I, I will. I will agree with you there. I struggled to get through this the first time. Oh, and I am not someone who falls asleep during movies and literally 20 minutes into this movie. I was like, oh, I have to sit up because if I don't, I'm falling asleep. So I literally had to like stand up. And I was sitting up and I was head bobbing the whole time. And I had a, like a crank in the back of my neck as a result of it. It's, it's hard I, to review. I mean, it's really hard to sit here and even um, talk about it from an animation quality storytelling quality. Um, I don't, I don't know if, if you had told me some other studio had done this and it was direct to video, it was the Swan princess seven, or whatever they worked on yeah, the black call call in the black cauldron. Yeah. I'd be like, yep. Makes total sense. It's one of those direct to, you know, DVD, whatever things that you find in a dollar tree bin. Right. I'm amazed that Disney had sunk so much and I know animation's expensive. I get it. But to work on this thing from like 1973 up until 1984, and come to the table with that. I can't imagine the 12 minutes that are missing would add anything to this film outside of just making it even harder to stay awake. Yeah. More incoherent. And you were an English major and I was a business major, but I still had to write papers. Unfortunately, Um, there's been times where I had these grand ideas for this paper. I was going to write, and it was going to be this huge. It's going to be great. And I get, to the very end and i'm like oh my gosh this was way too much for what i was trying to do you turn it in and they're like no you got you got to do this again this feels like something that you turn in like a first draft and they're like okay i can see some kernels of some good ideas but let's flush this out a little bit let's do this let's do this this is a first draft ass move like that's what this is it feels like first draft the movie but this is literally many writers directors, editors, it is it's, executives. It's, it's weird to me that, uh, cause I know we talked about the black hole. You weren't a fan of it. I, I know that nostalgia kicks in for me compared, on that film compared to this movie. The black, hole, the, the black hole is amazing. It, it is, but I, I still think there's, you know, regardless of what you think about the script, I mean, it's a disaster film, right? Uh, there's still enough going on. I think to keep you interested, I know hundred percent nostalgia blinds me from a critical view of that film. But it is amazing to me that when you, when you take a step back and go, we'll look at Transformers 4 or 5, whatever the latest Transformers film is, or the big budget blockbuster, this film does have a lot in common with those other films in that you described it as things just happen in the film, right? 
I would say for a lot of big, dumb action films or big, dumb spectacle films, that would be the case for most of the screenplay. Like things just happen. There's not a lot of character depth. And at the end of the day, you're just following a person who's going from point A to point B to point C and there's spectacle. If, if there was spectacle in this outside of the 10 minutes, I actually think it might have worked because the spectacle would keep you distracted from what's going on with the characters and even the sort of bland vanilla dialogue and, and everything else of that nature. Maybe I still think that (laughs) the, I I don't know how you'd say it, (laughs) the horribleness of the screenplay in the performances might outweigh the spectacle because the voice acting is terrible in this thing. However, it, it, it might have gotten beaten out if you had something visually so impressive, like some people, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on Fantasia. I love Fantasia. I think it's, I like it cause it's weird. It is, but I think, I think it is spectacle. I think it's music. It's all and spectacle, art, right? Yeah, it's all, it's spectacle. all spectacle. Yeah, but some people look at that and go, "I can't get into it. It's too boring. Classical me, all this other stuff." I'm like, "Dude, you get dancing hippos. I'm in." Um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, lo- love that aspect of mm-hmm. it, but it is all spectacle and it works. And I'm wondering if they had Bluth or if they had just said, "Stop trying to bring in the old guard. Let the new folks these these." new artists kind of take over and run with it. Let Tim Burton, I've seen some of those Tim Burton sketches. They look pretty amazing. Let, let that take over from the spectacle department. Still keep with your 12 people trying to write a screenplay. Uh, this thing would have, I, I, I really think it would not have bombed and it would have really ushered in, I think faster the era of Tim Burton um, of nightmare before Christmas and stuff like that. I mean, Tim Burton was always going to happen but it probably should have happened in 1985 versus later on. Right. That's my, yeah. Theory. Yeah. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. Cause when you watch a movie and it's bad or boring or whatever, you at least want something to take away from. And I guess my only thing is like the horn King is kind of cool. There's some cool shots with the black cauldron, but overall, for something that was going for such a spectacle to fail on almost every level visually, like, like I, I do like it because like there's some dark elements to it. It does kind of harpen back to that Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings film for me. Um, I think obviously that's kind of the aesthetic they're going for. doesn't look nearly as good, but um, there's really not anything to take away from this movie. And that's disappointing when you invest. I can't think, I can't think of what they were thinking to kind of go, we're going to put this thing on 70 millimeter with a six track, six track. Okay. 70 millimeter, six track Dolby. If you've ever been in a theater that actually had that, I I can't think of anything outside of the AFI uh, out here may have, they do 70 millimeter films every once in a while. Um, But I've seen 70 millimeter, six track Dolby films and it is, earth shattering when it's done correctly. And it is huge visual spectacle, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Just, just imagine your Dolby Atmos, THX setups, theater XD, whatever you want to call it. I mean, 
that was that version of it in the 80s, and it was pretty damn impressive. When you look at the content of what they had here, what made them think that blowing it up to 70 millimeter or adding that level of detail of Dolby soundtrack to it, outside of the 10 minutes, that pretty much leaves 70 minutes of just nothing being projected in 70 millimeter. And uh, outside of Elmer Bernstein's score, which I actually think is pretty good, it's, yeah, no, it's the, probably the so good it, is- it lulls me to sleep. But yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, this one, dude, I I could I could have probably looked at the storyboards if I were if if I were a CEO of Disney or something and walked in and like, what are you guys working on? And and if you just looked at the storyboards, you're like, dude, this is shit. What are you guys doing? Yeah, it's 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 amazing that it got to this point with so many people looking at it and so much writing on, Hey, this is going to usher in a new era for us. And it gets to the theater and it's this. Yeah. At what point like, do you just go, dude, call it a day and yeah, we spent 15 million and walk just, away. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think it's fascinating when something fails on this level that you look at how it got there because it just doesn't just happen. And the writing is on the wall, right? We already talked about it. Regime change. So many different writers, uh, you know, shelving it for so many times. Your production's Bad. 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have that, you have people walking out of your, of your screenings and then you still get to this point and you're like, we wasted $44 million. Um, I mean, granted, they recouped half of it, but that's only on the production. I'm sure, you know, it's, it's just a weird course of events that puts the Black Cauldron out into theaters. And it's this. Because like you said, you storyboard this thing out and you say, okay, hey, Troy, look, let's go through this. And you just explain to me what happens in this movie. And you're like, well, okay, so there's this, kid and he has this psychic pig i'm like oh okay and then you start to tell me stuff and then you're like wait what no yeah i I mean if you're michael eisner and jeffrey katzenberg like here here is one of the few times i would go dude i side with the studio on this one like these two who came in and would look at this property if they were saying well give me the pitch well we're going after a teenage audience okay i'm with you we got some scary elements okay good there's a psychic pig i've been like you really think teenagers are concerned with a psychic pig? Mm-hmm. It, that's the other thing that doesn't add up to me. If they were really going after a teenage audience, why the heck would you have cuddly, furry animals, psychic pigs, all this? Other, that's not what the teenage boys want to see. Well, it, it, and to be girls. fair, that's pro- obviously that's probably from the source material. I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing Hinwin is from the source material, but you knew what you when you bought the when you got the license or the rights to do those books you knew what you were, what was in it and yeah. you knew how you were going to try to to market it and you were saying this property is for our teenagers this is for teen boys or whatever and one of the things in it is a goddamn psychic pig and you're like nope boys <laughs> teenage boys love psychic pigs our market research shows <laughs> yeah it, it's it's just a mess man and i'm i kind of like looking at these movies because you get to see like how when corporations get all 
corporation-y and like things just like, no, we got to keep it going. Like we got to kick the can down the street. I don't care. I don't care. You know, at some point in time, someone could have said, stop, look, we'll lose $15 million. If we I, just I think stop they tried. Right now. I mean, these two guys come in and take over the studio and they're like, we should stop this. And, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I could totally understand them doing some type of reevaluation and going, well, should we just shutter this aspect of the studio down? Now, I think they made the right call. Obviously, I think that came from the board who said, no, 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 we still like our animation. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're not spending as much about it. And I think after this was done, they pretty much moved the animation studio from these like plush offices into like a warehouse. And then the mandate was, look, you're not going to get the budgets that you got. You're not going to be able to work under the kid. If you want to do animation, you have to streamline it and come, you know, the bobs come in, right? And, yeah. and yeah. do the efficiency stuff on it. And I think it works because the stuff that they were putting out after this is pretty fantastic. No, I, I think this is definitely a turning point for, for Disney. I think at, at, you could argue this being one of their most important films they've ever done. Uh, I think so. I, I, I think <laughs> so. Here's the fascinating thing about it. Without the Black Cauldron, I don't think we would have the films, the animated films after that because I don't think the studio, like if this thing were such a huge success in blockbuster, they would still be making films in the same fashion. Sometimes these failures force you to kind of re-examine mm -hmm. how you're doing the production. And when you tighten the budget to do this, that, or the other, it is going to put a push on creativity. Like I, I, when I sat down and watched Oliver and company, I hadn't seen it in years, but I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm just, I'm too tired. I'm I, not going to stay awake for another, you know, try and catch up on, on the things that I missed in, in my first viewing the black cauldron. The first thing that popped out in the first, maybe five minutes of Oliver and company was man, the art style of New York. I mean, it looks great. And that film is so much fun. And you've got Billy Joel, Bette Midler, Cheech Marin. I mean, the voice acting is fantastic. And that movie's like 80 some on minutes, but it feels like 15. It flies by. And I know yeah. there's a lot of music to it. It's contemporary pop for the 80s. But I could not get over the animation style, the city drive. It, it just, my eyeballs were loving it because the animation was just popping. It it looked great. Um, this it really is visual NyQuil. There's nothing outside of the cauldron sequence, uh, the horny king. Um, <laughs> that stuff was fantastic. But again, it goes back to that. You got 10 minutes of sort of visual spectacle and it's just not enough to offset all the other crap that's in this thing. And I, I want to harp on this again because it's so lame, but like there's a showdown at the very end between our hero and the horn king. And it, he literally gets sucked into the cauldron and you're like, that's it. That's yeah. the big showdown. This guy who was, you know, built up to this, you know, basically Goliath sort of level. And the army just and, falls over. Yeah. It's done. It's yeah. done. And you're, you're like, and again, I think you can see just like, okay, guys, we have to get this done. We have to get it to the end. We don't have the budget nor the time to have a big showdown with uh, our hero and the villain. We, we just don't have time. We can't do it. Um, yeah. I I'm really curious. So if somebody had came back and said, yeah, I saw that film when I was five and it got me into, you know, anime or um, I, I don't know, horror fan, films fantasy, or something, fantasy, something I'd be like, Oh, that's cool. But I, I'd be really curious of anybody who watches this thing 
that's five to 10 years old today and walks away from this and goes, wow, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I, I sat down and watched this with my daughter and wife because I told them about, they're like, Ooh, that I've never heard of that Disney film. I want to see it. And they were bored out of their, their minds. And my daughter is one that will go to bat for pretty much any Disney film, like little mermaid two, three, four Milan two. She's like, don't care. It's Disney. I'm, I'm in. But even then she looked at this and was like, Nope, not for me. No, it is. This, this movie is just so boring. And the clunky storytelling is to it it, it. it makes this thing almost unwatchable. It is. Well, let me ask you this. So for anybody who hasn't seen it and are into films, so they love films like, like me, I've never seen it. I've kind of heard about it before. It was, it was always known as, well, this is the film that almost killed the Disney animation studio, which is a little hyperbole. I mean, I, I don't think they were ever going to get rid of it. It was, it was, it was debated even before the film came out. Like, are we going to spend money on this? And they're like, no. We- yeah, I think that's a bit hyperbolic. I think this was the film that made Disney Animation reevaluate things. Yeah, like how they uh, did take it. An inventory of what they wanted to do. But yeah, killing it is probably a bit of a stretch. But if if you're a film scholar and you'd never seen this, would would you recommend somebody to go out and at least watch it once? I think you kind of have to. I think it's it's an important movie to just complete that exercise of what is this thing about what and to me when i watched it i was just shocked at the poorness of how everything (laughs) felt like just how cheap and and this is disney right like they're now the gold standard for animated films uh you know now that they bought pixar and all that stuff i mean basically it's it's them and and dreamworks but this is this is like them at like we we don't know what we're doing we're grasping at straws we're tr- we're trying but not coming together man watching something not come together in such a fashion is is kind of fascinating like i think it's a fascinating watch because it's so kind of janky in its execution that i, I feel like you kind of have to yeah, I'm going to take a different stance on this. I would say read articles about it, find the 10 minutes on YouTube that look interesting. I don't think I don't think you have to put yourself through this. Now, I would be curious. Um, we talked about this when we talked about the Fantastic Four film. Uh, Roger Corman made a film knowing it was never going to be released. And then there's a documentary doomed, you know, about the Fantastic Four film. And I think that's a great one two punch. But I think the reason why it's a great one-two punch is you can read this, you know, or watch this documentary. There's even a book out there. You can read about it too and hear all of the craziness that went on behind the scenes, how they made it, what happened to the release portion of it, et cetera, and then go and watch the film. And the film is just a train wreck, but it's a fascinating train wreck. And it's got some elements that are actually a lot of fun. And I think that's a great combination. You watch the documentary first and you go watch uh, the Fantastic Four film. If there was like an hour long, hour and a half documentary about the making of the Black Cauldron, I would love to watch that, especially to go back and see some of the concept, the artwork, et cetera. And from that regard, I would say, yep, then go watch the film. But I think trying to watch the film on its own without the context of knowing everything that led up to it, et cetera. I just think it makes it for a super boring watch. And at the end of the day, you could get the same effect by just saying, Hey, look at some of the computer animation effects 
that occurred, find those clips on YouTube, go find the horny King, um, elements on YouTube and, um, and you're good, but do not subject yourself to like the other 70, whatever minutes of this thing. Nah, I'll disagree on that. I, I think you kind of have to experience it for yourself. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm going to save a lot of, uh, <laughs> lives today. Cause I think this is the type of film that will drive you to alcoholism and maybe divorce and everything else. I think you should stay it's far only, away it's, from it. It's only 80 minutes. Dude, 80 minutes can do a lot of damage in one person's life. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it can. It can. <laughs> uh, you got any other thoughts on this thing? No, I mean, I took so many notes during this thing, but it was more just like, what is going on? How did he get a sore? You know, all the stuff we talked oh, about. Oh, it sounds like the same thing. I, I'm telling you, I took like five power naps through this film and... It's definitely one that when you're wake, you know, you have some films you wake up in the middle of and you're like, what's going on? This is one that I don't think you, um, you want to experience that because it's really confusing. It hurt my head actually. Yeah. Thank know, God for Oliver it, and company. In my like pie in the sky before I watched this is like, I knew it was based on the set of books. I was like, Oh, I, you know, if I like this movie, maybe I'll, I'll look into those books and you know, I have a, I have kids who are kind of young. Maybe we'll start, you know, looking at those. I'm like, after watching this, it's like, hell, hell no. I ain't getting anywhere close to those books. Um, you know, I'll stick with the Hobbit and the Lord of the ring. If I want the fantasy stuff. Um, yeah, I, God, uh, this is just, this is like black cauldron, AKA the shit show movie. It, it's just Disney went back and bought the rights again for, I know thing, I saw that, which I is ridiculous. That. Sure. Whatever. I, I don't know. Now, okay. Right. Okay. So look, and I'm going to say this and this might be crazy talk, but this is the movie that they should do live action remakes to. Don't do Aladdin. Don't do the Lion King. Do these things that failed. I think, I, honestly, I think there's a movie in here that could work. Uh, Maybe. I don't know if I want to see a live action uh, Gurgi, honestly. Uh, he's the best thing about the the heroes, but I mean, you think he'd that's have a not, butthole too, like cats? Probably. <laughs> I don't know. You don't see Gurgi butthole. I just want Gurgi to enunciate because I can't understand what he's saying. So that's my problem. So my my one of my things in life is I'm I'm going deaf because I guess I listen to music too loud. You know, all those times you're learning to say, "Hey, turn that down. You're going to go deaf," and mm-hmm. you're like, "Screw you, mom! I'm invincible." Well, now I can't hear anything, so I watch everything with subtitles now and they, you know, Gurgi is you know, crunchings and munchings and all this stuff. So it, it literally helps. So maybe you should look into that. You're, you're old now. You should I, do that. I am old. I hear fine. <laughs> <laughs> I hear just fine. Mm. Okay. I'm going to ask you the question. So we just got done uh, roasting 1985's the black cauldron. Is it a bomb? I mean, it was a well-deserved roast. Yes, this is, this is a bomb. And honestly, I think this is my favorite bomb that we've done. Not like this is my like favorite movie that sucked that we've done. Just like looking into a film, miss the mark so much and looking at all the reasons why and saying, and like literally just doing the exercise of checking the box. Like, yep, did that. Yep. They did that. Yep. They did that. Of course, this movie is going to make half its budget back because it's doomed to fail from the very beginning. This is that movie. I, I agree with that. I, I will say it's one. I agree with you. It's a total bomb. I did like the exercise of learning everything that went into it. I think there's a pretty fascinating documentary here 
or or even a really good book um, to kind of go through the details of what was happening in 1971 all the way up to, you know, the release in 1985. Uh, I just, you know, you and I will disagree on this, that given the content that's out there and the other classics, and, and I would say even classic bombs that you can come across, for now, without, I think, the right uh, special feature or supplementary material with it, on its own, with just a few articles, read the articles, but it, you know, see a couple of clips. I don't know if it's worth experiencing as a whole. Uh, but if they did something like they did with that fantastic four thing and just, you know, doomed the black cauldron episode, whatever, Mm. uh, that would be fantastic. Um, but yeah, I man, skip this thing. I I don't think you have to experience it. It may, I'll say this, the blu-ray look fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, the 4K looks really good, man. But dude, that, there's so many other things you can watch. In no, you're not wrong. Thing. You're not wrong. But like Oliver and Company, go back and watch that. That that one is just delightful, Brad. It's delightful. I don't know, man. When two people were in an accident on the side of the road, I turn and look. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you know what? I think we're gonna stay on the Disney train, and uh, next week it's my pick. I am. I'm telling you right now, I am super excited about next week. So you want to hear? Yes, I, I want to hear what we're doing. Please tell me. Okay, so it's a film that's come up in the past. And specifically, I think it. Uh, we were kind of mentioning um, comic book films, right? So films that were based on comic book material and what were the best ones out there, etc. This one came up as a contender while it's based on a comic book film or a comic book source material for, for whatever reason, we'll get into this when we talk about the film, I kind of put it in an entirely different category. Okay. But I'm going to be totally honest and just wear this on my sleeve. It is one of my all time favorite films. And I remember seeing it in the theater multiple times. Yeah. I'm going to 100% agree with you as well. Okay. Uh, it has my favorite movie poster of all time. Um, it is the best movie poster that has ever been made of movies ever. The, the Art Deco. The Art Deco. Flying oh, through. Yep. So fantastic. So we are going to talk about 1991's The Rocketeer. I'm so excited Directed for this. by Joe Johnston, who has been on the show before. Yes. Rocketeer comes up pretty much every episode. Uh, it's it's one of the movies that you and I have have bonded over over our friendship. Um, we are trying to get someone else on this podcast as who loves well. it just as much. Um, yeah, man. So next week we'll definitely be. You're going to come to hear us talk about how much we enjoy uh, the Rocketeer because we both have to get the stank of the Black Cauldron off of us. Um, this is going to be a I, highlight because uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I pulled out the 1991 video game. Um, I've already started reading the comic book again. I pulled out my movie cards. So if you remember the days when movies would come out, you know, tops or somebody would put all the movie cards. I have all those. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed those. Uh, I am going to go back and watch the serial that inspired the comic book, which this is why it kind of puts me out of the comic book mood. It's if you go back and look at, I think it's uh, commando Cody, 
Um, but more specifically, a serial that was like two and a half hours, three hours long. It's like 12 chapters. Um, King of the Rocketman. I'm going to try and go back and watch that too. Mm. Uh, but I mean, th- this is one of those films that while it comes from a comic book source material, the actual source material goes back way farther. And um, the movie, I think, has more in common with those 40s um, serials like, you know, Commando Cody, uh, yes. King of the Rocketman, et cetera. It, it's very close to the comic book, um, the, the the very first, uh, I think, four or five issues, which is kind of cool. But yeah, I can't wait to talk about this. Um, and I'm sure on social media, I'll be posting all the pictures of the Rocketeer stuff. I, I even have the original 35 millimeter trailer um, Ooh, in, okay. in a spool uh, sitting on a display downstairs uh, in yeah. the movie room. And, and I don't get to watch many movies with my son, but he and he loves this movie. So when I tell him that, hey, I, I have to watch this, will you watch it with me? He's going to be delighted to watch it again. So Yeah, and I think um, Cliff Secord himself, Billy Campbell, I think his birthday is today. So uh, happy birthday, um, Billy Campbell. So I, I, I want to say he's 53, something like that. Oh, shit. It is birthday is today. It is July 7th. <laughs> there you go. Son of a bitch. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, speaking of, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to segue into this, but Troy. Yeah. In September. Oh, yeah. You and I are going to be at a horror convention. Um, it is Horror Hounds in Cincinnati. Uh, we're going to be there. And so we're, this is like the first time we've been to a convention in a really long time. We've been um, to a bunch of them before, but yeah, I think you and I going together, uh, goodness, five years, maybe probably. Yeah. 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 Um, and so some of our friends are going as well. Uh, but yeah, if, if you're going to be in the area, you know, hit us up, we will be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm just looking forward to seeing people again. Um, it's been a long time since I've done a convention, so I'm looking forward to it, but yeah, that's horror hound weekend. Um, I think you can go to horrorhound.com and, and go to the Horrorhound Weekend yeah, and buy tickets and stuff. Yeah, Or just go to horrorhoundweekend.com, I think, is where yeah. the tickets and everything are on there. But it's it's a fantastic show. I, I got to tell you that my favorite it's, thing. It's our origin story of our friendship. It is. Um, and the people that go there are so amazing. I can't wait to see everybody's faces. Uh, I can't wait to just blow my entire paycheck on artwork. I get some amazing like fan artwork from there. But um, yeah. And if you're going to be there or you're going to be in the area, hit us up. We would love to meet you in person, especially at the convention. Um, and we're going to be tooling around. Yeah. I just ordered 300 stickers. So I will have a lot of stickers to give out. So oh, dang. Awesome. I'll give you one if you ask for it. Um, yeah. And then if you want to hit us up on social media, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, also you can, hit us on email. That's not a bomb pod at gmail.com or go to our website, not a bomb podcast.com and hit the contact us button. Troy, I think uh, one of the best things that someone told us this week is we have some of the best fans that people know in our community is great. Um, Cause some of the people that have been on the show, people have reached out to them and said, Hey, you know, loved you on that and this and that. And that makes me really happy. Cause you know, we, we do have a, a nice little community around our podcast, um, and it is nice to know that those people are good people. And then when we have people on this show, they're treated well. Um, but yeah, man, it's it's great. I think uh, I think the people that listen to our show interact with us 
quite well. Give us great suggestions. Um, all that good stuff, man. It, it's, it's great. Um, this is always an excuse for you and I just to talk about movies, but now there's like this other element of like, Oh, well there's people who actually invest their time listening and, and, and thinking about, Oh, they should do this movie. And um, I'm going to tell my friend about this show. Um, and that means a lot. It, it really does. Um, no, I agree. Yeah, you, you, I, it's... A lot, you put something out there and as much as I'd be like, well, I don't care who, listens or who doesn't it, it's like well i put it out there i want it to feel like it's making an impact and it it seems like in the last few weeks you know things have started to grow even more um it, it's it's kind of mind-boggling sometimes um you know the gentleman's guide crowd has always been super good to us um yes we've been riding sammy's coattails for a really long time <laughs> because he's helped us out a lot, but you know, those, those folks have been awesome. Uh, the VHS files, people and their fans have been great. Uh, the backlog cinema, you know, all that stuff, all those Iron people. Sequel. Have just been, I yeah. mean, we, we love interacting. I, yeah. I, I think it's funny. Uh, so just the other day got a message from a listener, um, Philip and uh, again, just starting up the conversation, talking about films, Mo- movies are just one of those things that, I think it just brings everybody together. Like what's your favorite movie? It's great. It's great conversation starter. Right. But it was cool just to hear out of the blue, just going, Hey, uh, have you heard about these two films, looker and Wolfen? And then he and I just having this fantastic exchange about the making of it, what we liked about it. Um, the POV shots and Wolf. So I agree with you hundred percent, the community and the people that interact with us on a consistent basis, that's the best thing about doing this. Um, I am totally amazed uh, when you show me the numbers. I, I still don't understand that concept, um, but I'm just super grateful that people take time out of their busy schedule and say, yeah, I'm going to listen to two guys just kind of shoot the shit about a movie. And hey, uh, we, we, like, <laughs> we like to champion the underdogs in the film world. Mm-hmm. Uh, because or, that's, that's usually or, or shit or shit on them <laughs> or shit on them. But yeah, I mean, that's the basis of the podcast. And I, I like the fact that people are responding well to it. And I love the fact that people are always looking for movies for us to discuss and giving us recommendations. Our list continues to grow. It's so much fun. Um, trying to go through that and pick which movies we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of happy. We're doing a couple of theme months, like in October, the, the horror sequels mm-hmm. that bombed, which man, that was tough. Uh, to come up with a list, but yeah, keep it coming. And and if you happen to like us and you can go on to any of the, I don't know, podcast sites like iTunes, et cetera, leave us a review, leave us a rating. That would be fantastic. Like tell us what you like about the podcast, um, share it with your friends, get them to interact too. We want to hear about their favorite movie bombs. And if you disagree with our take, Hey, look, if you think the black cauldron is the misunderstood Disney classic and we should take a third watch. It's not going to happen. Um, and, and really take our time with it. I would love to hear your opinion on it. Uh, I, I mean that that's the great thing about it, right? Perceptions reality. So yeah. I, I would yeah. really like to talk with somebody who just champions this thing because I, I really want to hear their take on what qualities stand out against everything else that Disney was putting out. Yeah. I, I, I think it's really funny. Sometimes like we put out our episodes pretty early on, on a Wednesday 
And sometimes people were like already messaging us at like noon on Wednesday. I'm like, damn, you went through that quick. I know. I I am amazed at how many messages we get by Wednesday afternoon. Um, We try and I apologize if we're not responding within 48 hours, but we do our best. Uh, (laughs) I think we're pretty good, but um, yeah. No, I, I agree with all your comments, man. No, yeah. I, I just want to say, you know, I, I appreciate everyone who listens and I'm not even going to try to play that too cool for school thing where like, I don't care who listens or whatever. Cause I do. Oh, um, absolutely. I just and, like and the people, friendships that we're, we're making out of it. Yeah. And people were like, Hey, do you ever listen to your own podcast? I'm like, well, of course, like if I can't listen to my own podcast, then how do I expect someone else to do it? So, well, and it's a part of our, our work, our workflow process. But, yeah. We got to edit. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> See, uh, QC part, but you know, but no, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate everyone listening, reaching out, reviewing our show, telling friends, all that good stuff. It's, it's been amazing. Um, and it will only continue to grow. And, you know, where it was only us tonight, but that was because we're doing the black culture, but you know, all the shows that we, we put out to people and put the list out, like, we have people who just line up to be on the show. And, and that to me is also one of these things. It's like crazy. Cause yeah, but, you know, people are giving up their own time to, to come on here and talk to us. I ran across a, po- a post from, uh, so this, this is kind of funny. I, I forgot to tell you this off air. So uh, John, who's been on the show, good friend. Um, I think he's going to be a whore hound too. So if you all want to meet mm-hmm. John, he's gonna be a whore hound. Uh, I, I run across something where his um, mother-in-law, father-in-law was putting something out there about the not a bomb podcast and promoting it. And it, and to me, I thought that was just kind of funny because that means John's in-laws <laughs> are at some point listening or paying attention and uh, are out there repping for us, which was, which was kind of cool. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, John's in-laws, you're, you're awesome. Love you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm going to, and, and I'll, I'll embarrass John later, but uh, John did a very nice thing for me, but yeah, I'll embarrass him later. Okay. So anyway, um, yeah, man. So again, thanks for listening. And uh, again, if you have a suggestion or a comment about the show, hit us up on at not a bomb pot at gmail.com. Awesome. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. Thank you for downloading the show. Come back next week where you're going to hear probably an hour and a half, two hours of us just gushing over the Rocketeer. So between now and then, your homework is to watch it like four or five times. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's fantastic. If you don't own this thing on Blu-ray, go out and buy it. But yeah, buy everything Rocketeer. It's an amazing film, and I can't wait to talk about it with you next week, Brad. So um, we'll, I'll catch you, what, in seven days or so? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. Don't lose your head. You're supposed to say, listen, I don't know when you're listening. Do it, Troy. No. Do it, you monkey. Do it. Dance for me.